0: Welcome to Evil Leap. Thank you to those of you who joined us for our first episode. This is our second episode and we wanted to start by telling you a little bit about what we're doing here. This is a podcast hosted by Daniel Pinchbeck, Daniela Plattner, and myself, Skylar Brown. Uh, Just a little bit about each of us. Daniel, if you know Daniel's work, he's a writer. He wrote a couple of books, uh, Breaking Open the Head and The Return of Quetzalcoatl, 2012 and Daniel's been focused on the environment. Uh, His next book will deal with the environmental crisis. Daniela is an embodied facilitator. She works with corporations and groups to unlock the wisdom of the body and bring the whole person into the work environment. And I'm a futurist and strategist uh, based in New York City. I work with big corporations to define their strategy and innovate for the future. And the three of us, unlikely characters came together in the spring of 2015 to host a climate summit at Facebook. It was a big meeting of significance, a lot of people in attendance, and a lot was catalyzed with regards to the climate crisis, including um, our own work and this podcast. So, Evo Leap is a chronicle of what we see as an evolutionary leap in consciousness and actions that's going to be necessary if we humans want to remain vital and vibrant on this beautiful planet that we inhabit. And while that sounds a little dire, it really seems to be where we are. It seems to be an accurate representation of this crossroads where we are. So, we want this podcast to be inspiring and informative, educational, fun, uplifting, sort of an antidote to a lot of the mainstream media about climate and about the crisis that we find ourselves in. We wanted to find a way to bring the voices of some of the extraordinary people we're meeting to a wider audience. So each episode will feature an interview with a visionary change maker, someone who is already living operating in ways that promote regenerative culture, sustainable culture. This episode features David Fenton.
1: I'm a 60s kid, uh, permanently damaged.
0: David is a legend in the world of PR and publicity for causes. He's been called the Robin Hood of publicity, and he really is. Um, He's quite a character. And we met David prior to our meeting at Facebook. And we were impressed by the fact that he sold his company Fenton Communications a couple of years ago to focus exclusively on the climate crisis. So David has been a little bit of a renegade, taking his four decades of experience and wisdom out into the world and making connections and catalyzing people to move on this urgent issue. So David was a part of our meeting. He's um, been working on a variety of climate-related projects ever since, and we sat down with him a few weeks ago at his apartment in New York City to talk about what he's learned over the years about communicating tricky or um, unpleasant issues to the American public, and what lessons we can take forward as we try to wake up and mobilize more people to take action on climate now. We hope you enjoy this episode.
1: So my story is, I I come from New York City, Manhattan, the Upper East Side, and um, I was pretty good at taking photographs, and I was going to the Bronx High School of Science, and my photos of protests and riots and rock stars started getting published in the New York Times and Life Magazine and all these publications, I started making all this money as a student. And in comparison, school was really boring. So I dropped out Mm -hmm. at the beginning of 11th grade and I never went back to school of any kind. I have no high school diploma, no college degree, nothing. Mm -hmm. And I dropped in to this very interesting alternative journalism world that was there in New York and especially in Washington uh, in the the early days of the Vietnam War and the beginning of the counterculture in the late 1960s. And I went to work for an outfit called Liberation News Service. Raymond Lungo. That's right. Which was the kind of the AP Reuters of the hippie underground countercultural anti-war press around the country. There were hundreds of these newspapers. And we serviced them with a mailing of news and photographs twice a week. And in that role, my job was to travel the country if there was going to be a riot and photograph it. So I had to not only take my cameras, but I would have a helmet and a gas mask and my lawyer's phone number written on my wrist. And this was, I saw a lot of violence and a lot of amazing creativity and a lot of great music, and I got paid $25 a week to photograph (laughs) it. And, of course, my parents were kind of freaked out that I dropped out of school, but once my photo started appearing in the New York Times with my name on it, they were okay. (laughs) So I come out of that, and I got my political education in that world liberation news service was a chapter of students for democratic society sds and i would go to the conventions and meet all the activists and it really was world opening to me and it was at a time when our generation was beginning to discover really for the i think the first time that you know the entire political leadership of the country were a bunch of liars uh, and that you know almost nothing they said was true and this was really a break from the very patriotic uh, post-war period. In 1971, I left New York and left the and I moved to Ann Arbor, and I moved into this hippie radical commune of organizers, which at the time, <clears throat> it had been called the White Panther Party. And when I got there, they had renamed it the Rainbow People's Party. <laughs> <laughs> and
0: we, was there an ideological shift that went around went along with that name change?
1: Uh, no, but you know, it was a kind of weird amalgam of um, hippie organizing, free concerts in the park, a little bit of Marxism, a little bit of everything, psychedelics. You know, we were deeply involved in the legalized marijuana movement. Um, in fact, we started a third political party in Ann Arbor called the Human Rights Party when they lowered the voting age to 18. And we took over the city government. And our first act was to make the sale and possession of cannabis a $5 parking ticket. <laughs> and that was still on the books, including for sale. Only now it's 10 bucks. And we opened free medical clinics and free daycare centers with the city's money. And we paid for free concerts in the park. So I did all the PR for that campaign, made the radio ads, helped the candidates with what they were going to say. And I had no background in this whatsoever. I also started taking over the newspaper that the commune published called the Ann Arbor Sun. And uh, you know that grew into the main voice of the alternative community there. So I learned media skills and politics all through that period. And we, we, uh, we had a lot of fun in Ann Arbor. Uh, we put the first statewide initiative on the ballot of any state in America to legalize marijuana. We got it on the ballot and lost badly. Um, at one point, we held a contest uh, to boost circulation of our newspaper, and the grand prize was a pound of Colombian pot. And we actually gave the prize away in front of, we picked the winner in front of the Ann Arbor Police Station. The winner was drawn by our local Democratic County Commissioner. And she threw it out and she said, and the winner is, I can't tell you. And uh, so we had a lot of fun. We did a lot of crazy things. Uh, It was a very instructive, amazing, interesting time. And then after being in Ann Arbor for about five, six years, I moved back to New York. And I got hired at Rolling Stone Magazine. and became the director of public relations there. And that's when I started working with the media here. And it was a, a really great time at Rolling Stone. There was a lot of investigative news stories, and Hunter S. Thompson mm-hmm. was writing, and we broke a bunch of stories about how Israel got its nuclear bombs and the CIA's penetration of the American media. The first time I ever publicized a news story to the New York Times, I went into their office. I met with the national editor. I said, Rolling Stone is going to publish a story in two days that says that the CIA had agents on your payroll posing as reporters including your top foreign affairs columnists. And they had to publish the story. It made me kind of nervous. but So, you know, that's what I come from. I started doing freelance PR jobs, and I started thinking that the progressive side needed a PR firm, that it wasn't a good thing for the democracy, for the PR firms to all be working for major corporations or evil foreign dictators, which is pretty much what there was. And I was watching the influence of these firms grow on journalism and it really concerned me. So I started Phantom, our first four clients were the Sierra Club, Mother Jones Magazine, Ralph Nader, um, uh, oh, what was the fourth one? Uh, Anyway, I'll remember it in a minute. And we started uh, working Uh, against the nuclear arms race and against apartheid and for sustainable agriculture for Rodale Press Mm -hmm. and so that's how the firm was born And, and the purpose was to work on the environment and public health and human rights exclusively and that's all we've ever done and all we ever will do.
2: So a lot of it was a combination of like social and political and ecological issues and, and now you've sort of shifted your focus to just really the ecological
1: focus. So. Yeah, I don't call it ecological. Yeah. You know, it, 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 everything's connected and you know, the, the climate issue is an economic issue, it's a security issue, it's a cultural issue, it's kind of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> and, and, and we have to change all those things to solve it. So, uh, you know, if you, sp- I tell people, don't spend time with climate scientists. It will ruin your day. It might ruin your life. Mm-hmm. It, you know, as you learn what is coming, all of which is completely unnecessary, it's so scary mm-hmm. that it's kind of hard to think about much else. And, you know, what I came to understand was that if we don't solve this issue soon, we won't get to solve any of the other things that we care about. Well, be enough everything will backslide. I mean, I mean, every bit of progress will kind of dissolve, really. You know, when you're abandoning all the coastal cities of the world, it's like other things become a priority, uh, you know, than peace and human rights, believe me.
2: So we were talking uh, earlier about how, we were talking about one media mogul that we both know a little bit, and how, you know, here's somebody who's a genius, He's built these huge companies, and when he builds these companies, he can see into the future, and he can do these five, ten-year projections. And he, he puts on his hat of like incredible logic and understanding of human nature and, and all that stuff. And then, when we try to try to speak to him about the ecological situation or the immediate future that's being predi- predicted, he's not interested. There, there, there's no resonance there, and, and that must be something that's happening a, a lot. And in the, in the, in the, in the, you know, there's a ruling elite to a certain extent—people who've you know amassed wealth and power. And there's this huge traumatic thing that, that's happening to the planet like and I liked your point Which is that I I'm, I'm always baffled because I'm like, you know, maybe like overly um, I have an overly strong faith in logic or something, but maybe you can ex- explain what you what you were saying before
1: You're, Well, first of all the first rule of human beings is logic does not apply Human beings are ruled by emotions and predominantly emotions and logic is really secondary and really overrated and you can't really appeal to people with logic, that's like a falsehood. Um, and that's a big problem in movement groups is they try to speak only to the head and that just does not work. But I think that uh, that mogul we were talking about as a human being with emotions, like the rest of us, uh, is probably being affected by a phenomenon that's affecting a lot of the population on this issue, which is shut down, mm. you know, climate change is really a tough issue for people. Because um, it's overwhelming, Uh, everybody feels guilty about their contribution to it, Um, and uh, nobody really wants to think about it. In fact, a friend of mine wrote a book about it, and, and he called it, Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Aren't Wired for Climate Change. You know, this is something that you cannot see, you cannot taste, you cannot really smell. It appears to be off in the distant future. You feel guilty about our collective contribution to it and so that's just like psh, shut down. In fact, the psychologists have speculated that the pathways in the brain that people use to think about climate change are similar to those that we use to think about death and dying and who wants to think about that? So.
0: I I think
1: that denial is a big part of the problem that we face.
0: Oh, I was just going to offer that in the millennial, in the group we did with millennials recently, um, I was surprised that they are are smelling it, they are tasting it, and they are seeing it now. Mm -hmm. So I think whereas that was true for the generation who are now moguls, the younger people have a very personal and tangible experience of climate change because it's happening now but they don't feel empowered to do anything about it that's where the gap is that's when they go numb they were telling us was that my individual actions don't matter so here you have people who know their individual actions matter a lot who are shutting down for their reason and then you know younger people shutting down maybe for different
1: reason but well I think it's a mixture sure I mean it's getting harder and harder to deny it and you're right a big part of the problem is that people don't know what to do about it and they don't see how their individual actions could possibly add up to something that would make a difference and to me you know this is largely um, our failure um, and when I say our I mean people in the activist public interest environmental world because you know we're good at certain things we're really good at filing lawsuits against bad guys really important you know we're really good at science and creating science we're really good at policy at you know at at the academic creation of policy but at communications marketing language imagery visualization that's not our thing those are those people that go to business school they do that we go to the humanities and the law and the sciences, and we have a, a, a basic fallacy in what we've been taught, which is that if you present the facts to people quietly, an enlightenment light bulb will go off in their heads and they will do the right thing, and it's not true. It doesn't work that way. And we are up against these evil marketing geniuses at the fossil fuel companies who actually know how the brain works because they've had to move products and services and befuddle and fool people into buying things that they don't need, and so they know how to do it. We don't know how to do it. And unfortunately, in our world, in the public interest in environmental and philanthropic worlds, communications... And moving people using the right language and symbols and imagery is not a priority, and we hardly spend any money on it at all. And we have a lot of money in the climate community, hundreds of millions of dollars a year, that largely goes into creation of what I call the supply of policy. And we're now, we have lots of policy ideas, but we don't have demand for policy, and we're not spending enough money or attention on that. So, you know, I'm hoping that we're going to shift our focus.
2: Just curious, uh, Daniela, because we were talking about, I remember like a few, because I always hammer on these facts, which seem to me like really... Ultimately, if you get them, you're like, oh, I get them. And I've been hammering on them for a while, and you've been hanging out with me. And at one point, I repeated again the fact about 150 to 200 species going extinct a day. And you were like, oh, well, wait a second. And it was like it finally hooked something and and resonated with you in a different way. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's just a factor of repeat exposure? Or or what do you think it is that that takes us to have a realization of something? The
3: conditions were... um... The conditions are always important. I was in a state of perhaps in that moment being more open to hearing that fact, just like the numbness that comes up with a sense of overwhelm as a millennial, as someone who's constantly bombarded with a lot of things that are going wrong in the world, mm. and also a lot of inspiration, like having grown up with parents who come from the hippie era, mm. and then all their friends who turned into socially responsible business leaders. Um, so there's the mixture of inspiration and then also the fear and the numbness. And that makes me think about your equation, David, your Fenton's law <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. that maybe you can share with, with our listeners now and then unpack that a little bit more because since you're talking about it, it's a communications problem and people need to move from this numbness or this denial or their brain being unable to actually Take in this information. How do we actually shift people to action?
1: So so that's right and on species for example We were once hired by a big foundation to figure out how to get people to care about overfishing and What we came up with is you couldn't talk about Overfishing like all the species you just couldn't do that what would move people is to talk about one species that mm-hmm. they knew about yeah and so we picked swordfish because they were deeply endangered at that um. time we were only catching baby swordfish they were too young to reproduce the species was about to go extinct and we knew that people knew what swordfish looked like they're on the walls of seafood restaurants it wasn't quite as popular as whales and dolphins but it was close and we got the nation's leading chefs to come forward and refused to serve swordfish until the government protected the nursing and spawning areas, And that worked. And we did protect the swordfish from extinction and then did campaigns on other species. But if we had just said, stop overfishing, nobody would have cared. So the so-called law that you referred to is uh, I I say that we need in talking about climate our message needs to be mostly hopeful to get it off that pathway of thinking about death and dying so roughly two-thirds hope and one-third fear you have to have some fear because we're in an urgent situation an actual emergency so if you just give people hope then that's not enough because, you know, you can take decades working on that and we only have a few years really to shift course.
2: I was also curious, uh, Skylar, you've worked with a lot of big corporations. I guess I met with somebody yesterday, Dylan, who was part of our climate change mm-hmm. thing, and he was talking about, um, maybe he's trying to working a little bit with, what's one of the biggest investments BlackRock or something like mm-hmm. that? And... Um, You know that you know trying to understand like the people who run these big funds like why they can't connect to this either because they're also seeing all these projections and so on. I was just curious from your experience with working with corporations, whether it's Toyota or um, you know Citibank or all these different ones you've worked with. You know where where do you see the biggest uh, disconnect? Like what 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 would it take? Are they just each one is in their own kind of cultic uh, uh, view where they're interested in their own personal benefit? than the success of the entity uh, overall, therefore they can't step out to see a larger picture?
0: Yeah, you just I think you just sort of answered the question. I mean, the culture, you know, within, within any successful corporation, you have a strong culture, and it comes from leadership. And um, I mean, I was telling you about being at the headquarters of one big corporation one morning for their daily or their weekly marketing meeting. And they call each other a family, and they were really promoting and you know applauding each other for personal, um, you know, running a marathon or somebody's son, you know, making this achievement. Or and and uh, and there was a lot of gift giving. There was a lot of gamification. There were challenges. Like I think you know, they actually worked in cubicles, and you know, you could just see that there was. There was like constructed this group identity for them and the success of the group, I mean it was sweet. It wasn't, you know, maniacal or anything but there was a very strong group identity that had to do with the safety, the security, the stability of the group and that hinged on the financial success of the organization. So all tied to sales and um, and everybody, you know, really seeking happiness.
2: Right, personal happiness. Personal happiness, yeah. But everybody's happiness is equally threatened now by the situation. And somehow we can't... All of our coping mechanisms and psychological programming is not allowing us to um,
1: to really move fast (laughs) enough. (laughs) But you know, the the information that we know about what we face, most people don't. Not only... And and it's largely because we have not ensured that it has reached them in a way that they can grasp, in a compelling way, in a repetitive way, and in a way guaranteed to reach them. You know, it it used to be when I started my firm in 1982, if I got a a client story, let's say about apartheid, on the CBS Evening News with Walter Clark, so 50 million people would see it that night, and kind of everybody knew. Things are not like that now. You know, technology is great, but in the case of media, it is fragmented, so there are no, many fewer shared experiences.
2: Well, and, and also there's no there's no financial um, benefit for the media companies in, in harping on climate change. I mean, the New York Times like got rid of most of its environmental reporters, I think. You know,
1: that's actually not true in their case. Mm. They still do a very good job. They did a technical thing and closed down a, a desk. But it's certainly true that the television networks barely cover it at all. But, you know, this well, isn't
2: just... When you look at the actual importance of the situation, like, you know, right. should there be a sports section? Right, right, right. right or an right, right, environment right. section? Well... You know, there really should be every day an environment section where, like, this is what, you know, is but, happening to but
1: the... Tell, you know, the news in this country has crazy. just been dumbed down, period, on every mm-hmm. issue. I mean, it's kind of like war crimes, what those people have done to this country, making everybody so uninformed. It's been, I don't know how they sleep, frankly. <laughs> This environment is challenging but we can work with it but but we're not we're just not doing it sufficiently we're really not and even the stories of, of solutions and there's so many now people barely know you know you can go put solar on your roof no money down, lower your utility bill. 20-year no, price guarantee. Like, most people don't know that even now. I saw you at that 100% Solutions
2: thing that was right in my neighborhood in the little park in the right, 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 and They put up this beautiful, um, you know, kind of mural uh, about the idea of 100% renewable, but I don't see anybody in my neighborhood industriously getting up there, like, installing solar park panels and rainwater harvesters. No, or, like, take,
1: the, you know, Baltimore, where the riots just happened. So we should be putting every single one of those young people to work insulating all their buildings, changing all their windows, painting all their roofs white to reflect the solar heat, putting solar panels on their roof, and every single thing, one of those things would pay for itself if it was financed properly. It all would result in everything being cheaper. It would create all this employment and sense of purpose in that community. I mean, we're idiots not doing stuff like that. But, you know, in the culture corporations, on the one hand, it's, in the fossil fuel companies, it's their fault. They are locked into old paradigms, they are greedy as can be, and they're, you know they're, they're stupid, really. I mean, they are spending, the publicly traded fossil fuel companies right now are spending $650 billion a year on capital expenditures for new exploration to find new reserves of fossil fuels when they can't burn 80% of the reserves that they have now if we're going to survive. So you have to ask yourself, what, why would they do that? And then how much do most world studies say it would cost to transform the entire energy system of the world over 25 years to be 100% clean and low carbon? And the answer is about $700 billion a year. So the oil companies are wasting all this money, investor and shareholder money, on doom instead of being smart and helping to own some of the clean energy of the future. So again, you have to say, wow, how could they be so dumb? So it's not just their fault, there's a systemic problem, and in this case, the equity stock valuations of the oil companies, for example, are determined largely by not only the size of their oil reserves but the rate at which they replenish them. So if you're the head of an oil company you're going to lose your job if you don't go to the ends of the earth and the Arctic and the deep water and frack everything in sight to keep replenishing your reserves as they are used because your stocks going to fall, your boards going to fire you, your investors are going to pull away. And this is madness. So who is determining That method of equity valuation well it's JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and Moody's and Standard & Poor's and you know all these people who are engaged in a collective idiot act of suicide it's like mutual suicide so you know you can't just blame the heads of those companies we have to go in and expose the madness of this including to the people perpetuating it and they don't even know, imagine they don't even know it in what sense? The people that are perpetuating that system of forcing the oil companies to keep looking for more stuff rather than creating a clean energy system really have not come to terms with what they are doing and how dumb it is. It's dumb. You know, and what just happened to the coal industry? You know, We started urging people to divest from fossil fuel stocks about four or five years ago. And people that listened and got out of coal stocks saved a lot of money. Coal is tanking oil is next you know the price of oil is way down the companies are struggling it ain't coming back
2: one of the one of the issues that we've gone back and forth on a little bit is whether the ecological mega crisis, which is obviously not just climate change, but also species extinction and nitrogen runoff and other stuff can can even be solved in actuality with this current political o- economic system or whether it requires a deeper transition in, in paradigm. So for instance, the economy is based on you know debt, which forces growth. So all around the world, everyone's trying to grow, grow, grow. And, and meanwhile, we have to sort of say like, we got to stop. The growth, and you know, and figure out how to make people comfortable, but but maybe in, in somewhat reduced, you know, uh, material circumstances. You know, and, and nobody's been modeling, you know, a path towards that—a kind of path of, of, you know, I know you don't like this word, but intentional sacrifice. You know, which is kind of what the Pope is calling for in, in the encyclical. You
1: know? Look, it's a very deep question <laughs> whether this crisis can be solved in the current economic system. I agree, it's a very deep question and, and, and maybe it can't be um, you know the thing about uh, capitalism is it, it's, it's, it's not like an either-or situation you can have heavily regulated capitalism and you can have heavily unregulated capitalism and a whole lot of places in between and the dominant ideology of our time is heavily unregulated capitalism in this country and that's a big mistake. Capitalism actually only works to create mutual prosperity if it is properly regulated because of the nature of human nature and greed. You know, People will steal. Some people, if they have the opportunity, you don't have a cop on the beat, people will steal. It's not that complicated. So can we create a sufficient set of incentives, penalties, and regulatory framework so that we can reward good behavior and start punishing bad I still think we might be able to.
2: Okay, so even I'm that, not sure. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I'm I mean, really not sure. I mean, so you know,
1: <laughs> projections are that we need to try to keep
2: the you know atmosphere from going two degrees warmer than pre-industrial levels. Yeah, it's actually that's, that's too much. We've discovered that's too much, mm-hmm. and uh, we're about 1.1 or 1.2 degrees Celsius higher than pre-industrial levels now.
1: Uh, three quarters of a degree.
2: That's it. Yeah, okay. right now.
1: And quarters. that's already. Leading, it's a lot.
2: It's already leading to incredible effects, like what's happening in California and wildfires, which are feeding more carbon. All the ice in the world is melting. All the ice in the world is melting. James Hansen now predicts 10 feet sea level rise in the next 50 years.
1: Yeah, Hansen says that 1.5 degrees centigrade is the the most. And for the audience, you know, remember that. That doesn't sound like much. But think of the difference between 98.6 and 99.6 that's the difference between sick and well. Mm-hmm. It kind of goes like that.
3: And is that those le- uh, sea levels rising in New York City, too? Oh, yes. The predictions that? The Especially level the level.
1: eastern seaboard of the United States, because ocean currents are constructed in certain ways. Sea level is happening more here than the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. It's really bad here. Yet, yeah, so I, I hate to say this, but New York is pretty much doomed. Uh, you know... Most estimates are that even if we stopped all emissions tomorrow, the level of sea level rise that you would have in New York would be very hard to deal with, you know, because you don't just have to cover potentially the sea level rise or whatever it's going to be. You have to cover for the storm surge that is on top of that. In Hurricane Sandy, we had a 14 foot storm surge over Manhattan. Cars were swept away, you know, in the West Village into the Hudson River. So uh, I think that uh, uh, the coastal cities of the United States and other places in the world are in big trouble already. But if we hurry up, we can avoid the worst of it. We're we're heading into tipping points on glacial ice where, well, let's put it this way. The last time there was 400 parts per million carbon in the atmosphere, as there is now, the sea levels were about 40 feet higher than they are today and we are headed for four to five degrees celsius increase in temperature on a business as usual energy plan over this century and the last time that happened in earth's history sea level was 200 feet higher and you know once the glaciers start to move we have no idea how to stop them there's no way to stop it so in in the period of diverse history where carbon dioxide levels rose naturally from tectonic plate activity. Now, now you're shifting me
2: back to plan C which is let's have a wild orgiastic <laughs> decadent end time party. Well this is, is why
0: we it. have to act. <laughs> playing, I thought that was plan D. You
1: know, in the past <laughs> in earth's history when this happened and it has happened mm. before it happened slowly.
2: And That's not true. Permian mass extinction I think was a century.
1: The extinction was fast yeah. but the rise of carbon dioxide levels generally was slow it's we're now jamming it so fast no one can predict how fast these effects will happen so this is madness but you know it'd be one thing if there was nothing to be done about it and we all just kind of had to party and say hey you know there's just no way to have light bulbs and heat and transportation without doing this to ourselves but it's not true we can do all this stuff
2: for instance we're already saying that New York within 30 to 50 years is probably going to become no one knows how long. We don't know how long why then put solar panels in the East Village today
1: mm-hmm. I mean um, well this that, is for saving shouldn't the globe building, not just New York
2: shouldn't we be building echo cities out
1: in the mountains of the Adirondacks instead I, or something we should do all of that remember Was that, the, that the, <laughs> what's going to happen in the mountains of the Adirondacks is not just sea level rise but you know but temperature change insect rain change Bacterial change, you know, there's no place to hide. So we have to hurry up and stop saturating the atmosphere with this. And we know how to do it. You know, I I drive a plug-in electric car that is charged by the solar panels on my roof. Solar panels are cheap. They're going to get much cheaper. They're just made of sand, Silicon
2: is just saying and I mean I guess you know, there there is things like very expensive I mean, you know very I mean still experiment like carbon capture Technologies like my friends doing this global thermostat project,
1: you know, maybe this stuff could scale up look one hopes that it can But you know, there's all kinds of carbon capture technologies we know of that we're not using like improving the microbial content and fungal content of the soil, you know all kinds of replanting and you know, and the so that, that, would,
2: that would be a great...
1: All these things are... are for the they're economically and technologically feasible. They would actually improve the economy. They would reduce... You know, the thing that people don't realize is... The thing about powering yourself with the sun and the wind is there's no cost of fuel. Right? Right. Once you build the infrastructure... The cost goes away. And and it's
2: decentralized, which makes it more resilient by nature. So you don't have a (laughs) conhead plant blowing up and then everybody is out of power.
1: You know, I was talking to the sustainability people at McKinsey a while ago about this. And I said, so what's going to happen after we, you know, their point is if you invest in energy efficiency savings and capture the cash flow from those savings, it's enough money to build the new energy infrastructure. Their view is the cost of transforming the world's energy system is net zero if you finance it right. So I said to them, okay, after you've financed it and you've paid it back and you have this new energy system, what's the cost of energy? And they said, we don't want to talk about it. Huh? Why don't you want to talk about it? Oh, no one will believe us. Why will no one believe you? Because it's going to be close to free, and no one's going to believe that. (laughs) So, you know, there's... It's it's kind of the most remarkably dramatic moment in human history. We have two roads in front of us. One is really prosperous and great and we can keep evolving and improve human nature and our habits and our collective spirits and prosper and flourish and continue to reduce violence and all the things that are actually happening. And the other is certain decline and destruction on behalf of 20 fossil fuel companies. Like what? How hard is choice is that?
3: So do
0: you ever do your like your radical roots ever get triggered? you know, working as you
1: do now. Now you're a respectable gentleman. I'm gentle, still but... radical. <laughs> who I else mean, do you know who talks like this? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I just wonder, you know... Me, well, actually. <laughs>
0: there
1: you go. Oh, that's right. I'm radical. <laughs> I don't agree with Daniel that we necessarily have to have so much sacrifice. We do have to have some. But we can power cars and planes with the right stuff. We can but have I mean, non-toxic materials. But wait, 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 Hold on, see. Daniel. <laughs> we can recycle <laughs> industrial materials so that they're in a virtuous you know, complete uh, cradle-to-cradle cycle. I really do believe we can redesign the whole system. I'm an optimist. I, I'm, I'm an optimist too, but I mean, I think it requires a certain stoppage, right? Like,
2: we have at the moment, we have a lot of inessential industries, like all the plastic toys and, yes, and stuff that people are buying. True. You know, and everything is designed for planned obsolescence. Like, my, sneaker, my sneakers, right. you know, the rubber wears out on our shoes after two exactly. months. Exactly. That's not
1: cradle-to-cradle. Know? That's cradle-to-grave. That's bad.
2: Right. So, it would Probably take a, a time of sorting out. It would. You know, it would be hard, but it would also unleash so much innovation and so much enterprise. But, but doesn't that also, once again, going back to requiring, like almost like a different political economic model? Like I was mentioning this commons transition and this idea that you know the the economic model forces debt competition yes. and planned obsolescence. Well, the economic
1: model has to transform, and the political model certainly, because we're living in a time of fantastic corruption in this country. And, you know, you, you have got to stop allowing... The New York Times reported two weeks ago that 150 families in America provided 50% of the campaign contributions. Right. So that's called feudalism. Mm-hmm. That's the baronial system that this country was founded to get away from. We have come back to it. And that has to be smashed. And again, it can be... Everybody hates this system. Everybody knows it's slimy and corrupt. People need to come forward with a simple, clear solution for it. You know, I know that um, uh, Larry Lessig, the Harvard professor, just announced this week he's going to run for president on this issue alone mm-hmm. as what he calls a referendum president to clean up the corrupt uh, uh, electoral system. And I think eventually the public will demand that that be done. You know, in history you go through periods of despair and cynicism, but you also, like we did in the 60s, go through periods of great optimism and possibility. I'm sure it'll come back. Come back, come back, come back, come back. I'm sure it'll 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 come back.
3: Are there any lessons we can specifically extract from the hippie movement that now applied applied to today? You said we talked about some of the differences. I'm curious what we can learn from your efforts because now, like you were going against your parents' generation, and now as a millennial, my parents' generation, you guys are the hippies. So we're extra, we're extra supported. But what can we learn from you?
1: The great success of what started in the '60s you can see in one part of the current equation. So where did we make progress? Women's rights, gay rights, civil rights, we have a black president, we are starting to reform the criminal justice system, personal freedom, we're on our way to decriminalizing drugs finally. So those are massive accomplishments. On the other hand, where did we fail? The democracy is more corrupt than ever. The corporations and the wealthy control more than ever. When it comes to what Tom Hayden used to say was economic democracy and the campaign for economic democracy, when it comes to power, we failed. We have failed. It's worse than ever. And we failed in large measure because we caused a counterreaction. We scared the living daylights out of the corporate power structure in this country. And they mobilized to fight back. And you can... Uh, uh, Lewis Powell, the former Supreme Court Justice, before he went on the court, he wrote a very famous memo on behalf of the American corporate establishment precisely about how to fight back against the hippies and the anti-war movement and the anti-corporate people. It's a very interesting memo. And he laid out creating a series of institutions on the right that would make the case for securing the free enterprise system and American corporate power. And they did it. They created the American Enterprise Institute and the Heritage Foundation and ALEC and their whole media infrastructure. And we didn't. And I think that's the mistake. They created an institutionalized activity to preserve their power. And because we were so into personal freedom, we didn't. So we better hurry up and create it. What would that look like now? We need a television network. We need to make sure that Our values are very uh, 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 systematically presented to people on mobile and social media. We need to create. I mean, you've heard me talk about how we've had 500,000, 400,000 people in the streets of New York at this climate march. It was breathtaking. Um, What are they supposed to do next? They don't know. Where are they supposed to go online to join an online climate army? Mm -hmm. We don't have one. So we need to build some institutions. I mean,
2: isn't that what 350.org was trying to accomplish? 350
1: is a fantastic organization, and uh, you know, it is focused primarily right now on fossil fuel divestment, which is very important, uh, 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 and the Keystone Pipeline. But you know, if you look at the number of people in the world that care about this issue, I mean, like, for example... We know that there are 38 million Americans who are alarmed about climate change. There's nobody that has any number alike, like that in their organizations online in this country. So we have a lot of work to do to improve and increase. Well, VODS has like 40 million. Uh, that's worldwide. worldwide yeah. And that's great. They're the strongest there is. Mm-hmm. That's a really great model. I think we were all too anarchistic. And you can see this in Occupy Wall Street. You know, what killed Occupy Wall Street, which was a beautiful and amazing thing, were the anarchists. Oh, everybody's equal. Everybody talks till you're dead. You know, no leaders. That does not work. Sorry. History proves that does not work. And um, so So I think that was our mistake. How do we
2: create a different uh, template? Like, how do we create a, a a melding of the, you know... The good parts of that, that anarchist uh, desire for equality and, and giving everybody a participatory well, state
1: like everything else it's all in the balance between these things you have to have grassroots power you have to have leadership but there needs to be kind of a, it's like a system you design. It's like, it's it. like a
2: design design challenge in a way
1: that's exactly what it is that's well put mm. it is a design challenge and we're not focused on designing it you know, everybody's off doing their own thing that's what the hippies were so we did that we accomplished that everybody's more free in their personal lives and that's a big deal you know the amount of oppression and repression and suffering and death and i mean incarceration it's unbelievable what what we helped uh to set in motion that's all getting better although there's a long way to go but on power we fail (laughs)
3: Personal freedom, which is mirrored in different psychological principles of the time, right? Like Gestalt therapy and finding your personal freedom, Marcuse and
1: then and, all that stuff right, like. and
3: integrating that into marketing. Right. Um, and then before that, Freud and the focus group model, and like you referenced this uh, experience with um, around for example it reminded me of edward bernays and him getting women to first start smoking right. and hiring the socialites you at the know time about that, to yeah. smoke at the at the edward bernays at feminist the, f- the founder
1: March. of public relations
3: yeah mm-hmm. freud's nephew
1: dr evil <laughs>
3: <laughs> and so if the hippie generation was about personal freedom what and if you were to just capture it in a nutshell, what what are we or what should we be about now
1: institutionalized structures that ensure freedom and survival, that deal with power. Again, we have this very prosperous road in front of us Mm -hmm. and blocking us and taking us down this road of certain decline, suffering and death really and basically the likely end of human civilization certainly organized civilization. Try maintaining your civilization when you're abandoning all the coastal cities of the world and dealing with massive international refugee crises and you know, all your capital is being spent on seawalls and, you know, survival and war. Oh my goodness. What, a, you know? You know, there's, there's a reason that all the movies of today are about the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. This is the subconscious of today.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, we have to deal with the power these people have and we have to take it away from them, basically. Oh, and, you know, it's interesting. Chris Hayes, the MSNBC commentator, wrote an essay in The Nation a while ago and he said so we're asking the fossil fuel companies to walk away from 10 trillion dollars has that ever happened in the history of the world that's the stranded assets that they have to leave 10 trillion dollars they cannot burn sorry and he said you know the only example he could come up with where it's happened before was slavery and he computed the net present value of the American slaves at the time. And it's about $10 trillion. And unfortunately, though, the analogy doesn't quite hold because we had to fight the longest and bloodiest war in U.S. history to to force them to give up those assets. So Chris says, is there any reason to be optimistic? So he could find one reason, which is that slavery was not a capital-intensive industry. It didn't cost anything you didn't feed slaves anything you didn't educate them the housing was horrible there were hardly any co- it didn't cost anything once you bought them now fossil fuel exploration on the other hand is now the most capital intensive industry in the history of the world as they go to ever greater depths and remote locations and all this and so eventually chris says perhaps the financial industry will figure out that all this is a giant waste of their money as well as causing worldwide planetary destruction and if they withdraw the money for that exploration and shift it to a rational energy system we might actually make it.
2: Let's say that you were made uh, king of the world right now. <laughs> asked, uh, that would be
1: a very bad idea. Yeah, I'm, I'm, for, I'm for the world. Not right? for anyone to be king of the world. Okay,
2: but let's just say, like you know, <laughs> you're given the opportunity to um, do what needs to be done. You know, what do you do starting tomorrow?
1: it was me, well, I think the United States is the primary problem. You know we can't get fifty-one U.S. senators to vote for a non-binding resolution simply admitting that humans are changing the climate. So I would do massive education here. I would uh, absolutely fund campaigns only with citizen dollars uh, reimbursed by the government. Uh, you know, voucher system. Um, I would reintroduce. Laws that Ronald Reagan got rid of including the Fairness Doctrine and the Equal Time Doctrine So that the media could be restored to some balance and sanity Uh, I would massively prop up uh, uh, Public television and public broadcasting Because there really is a fundamental conflict Between private ownership of broadcasting and the incredible Subconscious power of television You know, I, I would make sure that the uh... The, the technology companies also had to provide a certain amount of public service uh... equal time fairness etc because now that's the medium of today um, i would uh, implement a, a steeply rising price on carbon so that uh, uh... clean energy became cheaper and dirty energy became too expensive um, and uh, and I you know and I would get the rest of the world to join in because if we put a price on carbon we can put tariffs on goods that come in from countries that don't have one and everybody then is going to want to have it rather than give their money to us All right so so those are a few things I would do nice. what about let's say um, Zuckerberg the
2: Facebook uh, guy said to you, um, David take over his Facebook for a while you know you got this you know we got to deal with some I wouldn't have the skills for that and <laughs> <laughs> Take
3: over. <laughs> could be king of the world. <laughs> and at the end of, of our interviews we like to ask what are just a couple things that our listener can do
1: well in uh, about 27 states now you can go online and pick up the phone and get solar on your roof unless you're being blocked by a bunch of trees and pay less money for electricity right now. If you can't do that, you can uh, order, in many states through your utility, 100% wind or 100% solar power uh, for pretty much the same that you're paying now, a tiny bit more. Electric cars are about to become a 200-mile range and uh, priced the same as regular cars, so get ready for that. Um, eat local, stop eating so much meat, it'll kill you, and it's bad for the planet too. Uh, There's a few things.
0: Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at hello at evoLeappodcast.com. Musical interludes were created by Jacob Schaefer. You can find out more at jacobschafer.com. Thanks to Kate Nicholson for web design, research, and support. And big thanks to Alex Kennedy, our producer, and what?
3: <laughs> What's the other piece? Editor, I'm
0: your editor.
3: Shit. It's <laughs> going so well.